Please turn with me to Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For for the Lord is a great God, a great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand today, if you hear his voice. May God add the blessing to the reading and to the hearing of his word. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Psalm 95 is one of the classic texts in the history of the Church on the subject of worship in the Roman tradition. We have learned to call it the Venite because its opening words and repeated words in Latin, O come is Venite. It's used in the Lutheran and Anglican and Episcopal and Roman and other liturgical traditions as canticles before matins and praises. It's the invitation and information about worship that the church through the centuries has treasured. In verses 3 to 5, the psalmist cries out, The Lord God is the great God above all of the gods. The mountains are his, the seas are his. The land is his, the cut grass is his. That's a slight interpolation into the text, but it means it there. You may know that the ancient world was, in many of its climes, animists. And they thought that there were deities and gods behind almost everything. Seas and rocks and hills and lakes. And So in the ancient world, the psalmist had to say, God is the great God above all other gods, but that's not us. Uh, Southern Marin people think, I'm not really religious, but I don't really engage in worship either, but that's not really true. We've seen that in other weeks. The first of the great commandments declares that we are to place no other gods before him. In other words, we are to let God be God wherever we are and whatever we do. And the world is simply not divided between people who worship and people who don't. The world is divided into people who worship the one God who alone is worthy of the praise of our hearts and people who worship things that will twist their lives into distorted figures. We are either worshiping the wrong things or we're worshiping the only one whose worship will not distort our lives. So part of the process of coming to true worship or being authentic worshipers is we've looked in the past two weeks, is this process of turning, of transforming the worship which we are always about to authentic worship, to its right and proper object. That's what changes our lives. 
A few years ago now, I determined to read at least one of the Harry Potter books, so I'd know a little bit about what all that was about. I realized it's peaked and almost gone now, but I did read the first one. And in the first Harry Potter novel, there's an object called the Mirror of Erised. Now, it's a children's story, so it's not terribly subtle, and Erised you'll soon discover, and we're told in the text, is desire spelled backwards, the mirror of Erised. Harry Potter comes along it, he looks into it, and he's amazed. He sees there the figure of his parents. And what is so amazing about it is that they were dead. They hardly, uh, he really didn't know them at all. He, they died in his infancy. And he saw them there looking at him, loving him, touching his shoulder. And he's so excited, he goes and runs and finds his friend Ron Weasley. And he brings him to the mirror, expecting to see his parents in there. And when Ron looks in, he sees himself as a sports hero. And then it transforms into the head of the school where they're attending. Wait a minute. Uh, Potter says, what's going on here? And his mentor, Aldous Dumbledore, comes. And he explains that this mirror shows you the deepest and most desperate desire of your heart. Every single one of us has something that we're holding on to that we say intuitively, if I have that, I'll be okay. If I have that, I'll have meaning and purpose in my life. If I have that, I'll be happy. Authentic worship is a transferring of the worship we already give to that which is worthy of it. Dumbledore, at the conclusion of this particular scene, says we're going to put the mirror away because if we don't, people will stare in front of it and waste their lives away. Becky Pippert, in one of her books, uh, says, or rather I'm going to uh, paraphrase it, the person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who lives for acceptance by other people is controlled by the people he or she seeks to please. But one thing is certain. We don't control ourselves. Whatever controls us is our Lord, and we're controlled by the lords of our lives. We're all going to live for something. The Bible says our ultimate problem and our ultimate solution is where we place and to who we give our worship. Now, if that's the opening, what uh, if the church has been not only invited to worship but informed about worship through the millennia by Psalm 95, what can we learn there? Let's look at just a few things this morning. If worship is to truly transform our lives, then it has to, by definition, engage our whole self, our whole being, our whole nature. Now, this particular psalm can be easily outlined, falls into three parts. Verse 1 and verse 6 and verse 8 begin the sections. In verse 1, we're called to worship God with our emotions, with our passions, with our feelings, sing. Shout aloud, give thanksgiving, extol him, worship God with music. Then in verse 6, we're called to worship with our will, with our volition, with our submission. Come, kneel, bow down before him. The language is that of our wills. Then in verse 8, 
It's the beginning of thinking. Hear his voice. Listen to his voice. Accept what he says. It's the language of reasoning and understanding. In other words, worship, which is strong enough to be ultimate, which is strong enough to transform our lives, which is strong enough to engage everything, has to engage our emotions and our wills and our thinking and our minds. It calls us to rejoice and to reverence and to respond in a way that energizes and engages our whole person and our whole being. If you affirm doctrines and beliefs without ever experiencing in your inner being a ravishing sense of beauty and joy, it's not authentic worship. Or, if you weep or laugh or get excited, but it isn't rooted in an understanding of the very character of God, it isn't worship either. Neither bowing and kneeling without joy on the one hand, or shouting and singing without bowing and kneeling in reverence before the holy God on the other hand is real worship. So what is it that engages our totality, our senses, our whole self, our real being? The text focuses on the magnificence of God. Look at the first word in verse 3. For, because. And then he has a recitation. Because God is great. Because he's king. Because in his hands are the depths of the earth. Because the sea is his. Because his hands have formed the dry land. Look down at verse 6. Come. Let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel. In verse 7, that word for, because again, because he is our God. And not just our God, our great God. He is our God. He is a shepherd. And he enters into a relationship with us and he makes us his people. All of the emotion, all of the worship, all of the transformation comes from the heart and head of the psalmist because he is about the activity of reciting and recounting and rehearsing and focusing on the excellencies of God. He's going over them. He's going through them. He's marinating himself in them. He is enumerating them. He is our rock. He is our God, the great one. He is the great king. He is the God above all other gods, which means the erisids or desires of our heart. He is the one who holds the valleys of the earth and the peaks of the mountains and the expanses of the sea. He is our maker and he is, thanks be to God, our shepherd. He didn't have to be. The psalmist is reflecting upon all these things until there is an explosion in his life. God is above all. He is in all. He is through all. He is over all. And the reason we are on this planet is to recognize that and to celebrate that. The chief end and purpose of man is to praise God and to enjoy him forever. Charles Spurgeon was, if there is such a thing, and there is, a preaching prodigy. As a teenager, as an early Early 20-year-old, he was already a uh, preacher of amazing power. Uh, I, I measured on my shelf the, the longest set I thought it might have been. I hoped, actually, it was Karl Barth's, Barth's Church Dogmatics. But longer is the set of uh, sermons of Charles Spurgeon from his Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit. It's about that long, the longest set I have. 
the first words, the first sermon that Spurgeon ever preached as a young man at 21, not ever preached, but preached in that setting, at 21 years old, are these. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can engage the intention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with, and then we feel a kind of self-content and go our way with the thought, Behold, I am wise, I know something. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth, and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought, I know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. Great God, how infinite art thou, what worthless worms are we. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the one who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified. And the knowledge of the Godhead and the glorious Trinity, nothing will so enlarge the intellect, so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound, In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief, and in the influence of the Holy Spirit, there is a balm for every sore. Would you lose your sorrows? Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed, invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm, the swelling billows of grief and sorrow, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. That's from the 19th century. I thought it would be interesting to jump to the 21st century and Garrison Keeler. In briefer compass, he says, we don't go to church to hear lectures on ethical behavior We go to look at the mysteries. We go to look at the mysteries, which is to say we go to worship God. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. Note that the psalmist doesn't simply call us to worship God. He calls us to bow down. He calls us to kneel before him. We have to kneel down in order to be lifted up, bowing down isn't something we're much trained to do as Americans, and in its own place for very good reasons. We are a people of equality. We believe all people are equal, and we are equal one to another, and there is a place for that, but not in worship. I remember as a boy, I was at a uh, dinner at which Chief Justice Earl Warren was the speaker, and 
Afterwards, he was actually greeting people, and I tugged on my dad's uh, sleeve, himself a judge, and said, aren't you going to go and speak to the chief justice? He said, no, I don't think I will, but you can. And so I did. I went in line, and I shook his hand. And After in the car home, I said, Dad, why didn't you want to go shake the hand of uh, the chief justice? And he said, well, I've met many of the great of the earth. And son, I've discovered they put their pants on one leg at a time, just like I do. That's true in its place. You see, God doesn't put his pants on one leg at a time, just like we do. We need to bow down and acknowledge who we are before him. When we bow down and kneel, we acknowledge that he is above us, as far above as the heavens are above the earth. We acknowledge that we need him as much as we need food and clothing and shelter and love. The psalmist says, we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his care. What does sheep do? But what the shepherd tells them. And they go where the shepherd leads them. He calls us out of our empty cells so that we might fill him with himself. I heard about a minister who was asked uh, by a parishioner, could you put in 25 words or less what it means to be a Christian? And he thought for a moment and He handed her a blank sheet of paper and said, sign the bottom of that and then give it back to God for him to fill in anything he wants. That's what it means to be a Christian. Someone asked Florence Nightingale, the woman who founded Modern Nursing, to what she attributed her success, and she said, I've never refused God anything. Or the mystic meister Eckhart Centuries ago, said God asks only one thing of you that you dethrone the creaturely self and let him be God in you. We are the people of his pasture, we're the flock of his hand. He's the one who forgives us, he's the one who died for us. If it's the ultimate need of your heart and the ultimate need of your life, then uh, one more thing it's so obvious that it might almost miss you. Worship leads towards being corporate and communal. Listen to the words. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our God. He is our God and we are his people. So, all right, maybe the text is just talking about corporate worship, but I think it's more than that. I think although individual worship is important and, of course, it starts with us and overflows from there, I think individual worship also leads to and is completed by and finds its climax in corporate worship. C.S. Lewis explained this about as well as uh, anybody I can. He had a group of two friends. Uh, he called them Ronald and Charles. It was J.R.R. Tolkien, the Ronald. And Charles was also the uh, famous uh, uh, Christian writer and fantasist. Is that a word? Charles Williams. But he said uh, in The Four Loves, and he's talking about friendship, when Charles died... I comforted myself somewhat by saying, well, I'll, I'll have more of Ronald through this. Uh, I won't have to share him with Charles. Then, uh, to his surprise, as he ruminated on it, he said he discovered he thought he had 
less of Charleston before because that part of Charleston was brought out and elicited by Tolkien, by who we called Ronald, wasn't there anymore. That facet, that dimension was missing. He puts it this way. In each of my friends, there's something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I'm not large enough to call the whole person into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Caroline joke. Far from having more of Ronald, Tolkien, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. We possess each friend not less, but more as the number of those with whom we share him increases. Intercultural, intergenerational. We are that as a goal, not just because it is God's picture of the kingdom, not just because we are called to seek and reach, but also because it is part of the picture of who we are to be. The more diverse that worshiping community we are, the better. Doesn't that make sense? Young and old, male and female, all the races, all the classes, the more diverse our worshiping community, the more we're going to get an accurate picture of God. And the more we're going to understand him and be able to praise him. Worship means realizing that God's love, God's self, his magnificence is more valuable and satisfying than any other love. Worship means that knowing a relationship with God is more beautiful and more powerful than any other form of honor or pleasure. Worship is a process that every time we reflect on him, whether it be through singing or confessing or meditating on his word or listening to his word proclaim or rejoicing or lamenting or reverencing, we are about the task of pulling our hearts off of those things that will kill us and placing them on that one who alone will not distort our life. If an authentic worshiper, if a true worshiper were looking in the mirror of Erised, what they would see is a life, a soul, reveling in and delighting in the presence of God. Would you like for the poison of your life to be replaced in its empty places by the balm, by the ointment of God's presence? Would you like for God to pull together the broken pieces of your life and for your hearts to become strong at the places where they are broken? If you would like that, dethrone your creaturely self and let God be God in you. Oh, come. Let us worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. And when we bow down, he will enable us to reach high. And when we kneel before him, he will allow us to touch his face. And when we surrender our wills and our lives to him, he will set us free. Father, we ask that you would make us more skillful worshipers because we have looked at Psalm, this great Psalm 95. Make of us an even deeper worshiping community. Help us to overcome our allergies to the truth.
Grant us your Holy Spirit, and most of all, help us see that in the cross of Jesus Christ, we are helped to see your love. If we look to the cross at your love, we see your grace in the most amazing ways. It's through Jesus that we really see your ultimate power and beauty in a way that transforms us. So give us these things and make us more like your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.